These two places couldn't be more different or more popular with visitors from around the world. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today we'll visit two spots in the western United States that just keep getting more popular. One of the world's top tourist destinations is Las Vegas. America's gambling mecca in the Nevada desert picks the pockets of millions of visitors each year, and they absolutely love it. And they keep coming back for more. Guidebook author Rick Garman tells us why. Las Vegas, I think, is the ultimate example of you build it and they will come. And for a vivid contrast, later in the hour, we head for California's dramatic Yosemite National Park. Half down this looks like it's been split in half by some unseen hand. And it's one of the most notable features of Yosemite Valley. A lot of people hike to the top of it. It's a really remarkable piece of granite. Anne-Marie Brown knows this breathtaking landscape like nobody else. In fact, she wrote the guidebook. We're hitting the strip in Vegas, immersed in the pristine wonders of Yosemite, and taking your calls. It's all coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're staying a little closer to home. Our target, two of the most popular destinations in the western United States, Las Vegas, Nevada, and Yosemite National Park in California. We'll explore the towering trees and cut-glass peaks of Yosemite in a little while. But first, let's talk with Rick Garman, who runs the Las Vegas Visitors website and has just written a new guidebook on Sin City. We'd love to deal you in. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. We're going to try our luck right now in Las Vegas. Uh, Got to be one of the world's top destinations. I mean, it's, it's a city that has like 40 million visitors a year. Uh, that's three or four times as many visitors as the major sites in Europe. It's a city that has more hotel rooms than any other city in the world, and they're 90% full. It's incredible. What a phenomenon. Eight out of the ten biggest hotels in the world are in Las Vegas. It's no longer a dusty little stop out in the middle of the desert, although it is the most geographically isolated major city in the United States. It's a city now of 1.5 million. It's been growing at the rate of 5,000 a month for the last decade, considered the fastest-growing city in the United States. And, of course, it is a perennial stop for a lot of vacation goers who like to mix a little gambling into their desert fun. And I've got on the phone with me um, the author of a brand-new guidebook to Las Vegas, Rick Garman. Rick, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Did I describe Las Vegas correctly? Absolutely. Got it out of your book. <laughs> That's why I said it was nice. <laughs> it's a great book, and it's uh, great to talk to you because I'm like a lot of Americans. Uh, we know a lot of people go to Las Vegas, but it's kind of foreign to me. And uh, you're in love with Vegas. Oh, absolutely. I've been in love with Vegas for a long time. It's uh, a city unlike any other in the world, although it, it tries to replicate a lot of places in the world. Uh, there, there's nothing else like it. How can you be in love with Las Vegas? The city is all about having fun. It's about dismissing everything else that's real in your life and just going and being entertained. Uh, you know, the casinos don't have windows. There's no clocks on the walls. Uh, it's just you and that slot machine, and uh, nothing else counts. So it's all about the id. It's all about the entertainment. And you uh, you admit you spend entirely too much time at the slot machines. I, I do, unfortunately. What is it about the slot machines for you? Uh, it requires a lot less thought than things like blackjack. Okay. Blackjack, I actually have to think about what I'm doing. Do you think uh, in your lifetime you're uh, up or down on the slots? Are you winning oh, or losing? Oh, definitely down. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. Well, at least, you're, at least you're not uh, delusionary about it all. No, no, no. But the thing about gambling is that, it again, it should be seen as a form of entertainment. Budget yeah. the amount of money you want to lose and, and consider it gone. Just like saying, I'm going to go to New York and spend this amount of money on shows. Yeah. This is the amount of money I'm going to spend on gambling. Las Vegas is uh, hugely popular with Americans, what, uh, 40 million visitors a year. Uh, and I understand it's popular also with non-Americans. It's definitely a worldwide destination. You know, you walk into any casino and you'll be able to hear languages from all over the world. Things like Chinese New Year are very popular uh, in January and February. Oh, so you can be in Las Vegas and you can tell who's having holidays around the world by who's uh, inundating the city. Absolutely. Now, I was uh, once giving a talk at the University of Las Vegas, and a professor gave me a psychoanalytical tour of the city. He drove me around analyzing it from a social point of view, and he explained to me how any country of three, 300, 300 million people or whatever we have here in the United States, they need a, a Las Vegas as kind of an escape or something like this. Have you given that much thought? 
It's often been referred to as the adult Disneyland. It's the place where adults can go and just drop everything. They can forget about the job. They can forget about a lot of times things perhaps they shouldn't be forgetting about and totally let go. Uh, it's what that whole commercial campaign about what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Right. So, yes, absolutely. That's interesting. I think uh, the best-selling guidebook in the United States right now is the guidebook to Disneyland, but uh, maybe you've got some good possibilities from a sales point of view with a guidebook to Las Vegas because it is the adult Disneyland. There you go. What's the deal with this European theme and all of these uh, foreign places? You can see the Eiffel Tower. You can take a gondola ride. You can go to Bellagio on the Lago di Como, the best of Italy. You can go to the into Luxor and these great Egyptian temples without leaving the desert in the southwest of the United States. Part of that is because, although it is a, definitely a worldwide destination, the majority of visitors that go there are from America. And so a lot of these the recreations of wonderful things from outside of the country are appealing to Americans. But they, there's also American recreations. You have the entire skyline of New York there at New York, New York. Huh. Are they appealing to Americans that just would rather not leave our country and see? Uh, they, they kind of think, well, I've, I've seen Venice now. I think there's a certain amount of that, but I think it's more just that it's it's more grand and glorious. You know, in this country, we don't have things that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. Right. Uh, mostly our, our cities have been redone so often. So to be able to see something like Venice, which is a representation of something that you just, you don't see that kind of thing. I swear I was just there for a convention looking out my uh, hotel window. I could I could pick out sites from the eight, the, the, the wonders of the world were right there out my window, and I could see, well, for some people, that might have some sort of an attraction. Hey, we've got a lot of callers in the line. I'm talking with Rick Garman. He's the author of the new Moon Handbook to Las Vegas. Let's talk with Bob in Bowling Green, Ohio. Hi, Bob. Hi. Are you an experienced Las Vegas vacationer? Oh, yes. We, we go out there once a year, and, uh, always what, in the fall. Always in the fall. What are, some of your, uh, what are some of your advice for people who might want to appreciate Las Vegas? Well, the first thing I would advise people is when you're on the airplane, if you're flying out to Las Vegas from any place, find somebody local and ask them if you're looking for a good place to eat that isn't a tourist attraction. We always do that, and we've found some wonderful out-of-the-way places to eat uh, just by doing that. Hmm. I, I absolutely agree. The, some of the best restaurants, in fact, my, my favorite restaurant is not on the Strip. It isn't a casino, but it's not on the Strip, and it's mainly locals who go there. And asking uh, people who know the city, uh, especially locals, can always get you some, some undiscovered gems, and I, I highly, highly recommend getting off the Strip. You can save yourself money and find yourself a lot of really fantastic things. And, uh, Rick, what's your favorite restaurant? Uh, it's Austin's Steakhouse, which is at a casino called Texas Station on the north side of town. Unbelievable steaks. Now, there's, there's 1.5 million people in Las Vegas. They're not gamblers. They're people who live there. They're school teachers. There's firemen and all this sort of thing. Do they sort of live in a parallel world, or are all of them every, uh, every chance to get running down and playing the slots? Well, it depends. Uh, most people who are in Vegas at least claim that they never go anywhere near the casinos, right. um, especially the Strip. Uh, it's sort of like living in Los Angeles, how often do you go to Hollywood Boulevard? Or living in New York, how often do you go to the Statue of Liberty? The Strip is primarily a tourist attraction. So the bulk of the people who live in Las Vegas, they may go to the locals' casinos. Oh, there are local casinos? Oh, absolutely. Uh, ah. As I mentioned, Austin's uh, Steakhouse is at Texas Station, which is one of many smaller casinos that are geared primarily toward the locals. And you'll find cheaper restaurants, lower limits on gaming, and, and all sorts of additional attractions like movie theaters and bowling alleys, all designed to get the people in those neighborhoods to come in to their hotel and their casino. Hey, Bob, in Bowling Green, Ohio, you got some advice on shows from all your experience? Well, um, I have two pieces of advice. One, we found out that if you are interested in a main attraction, uh, you can always find them on the website, but they start booking uh, the best tickets um, three months to the day before you'd want to go out. So if we find something that we want to see, you know, I'll get on the computer exactly 90 days beforehand, and you know, I've, I've gotten like second row, middle of the stage seats to, you know, the top events. I really probably shouldn't be telling everybody this because now I'll have to fight with people yeah. getting these tickets. Good advice. Bob, thanks for your call. And, uh, could I just add one thing? Sure. Um, we always like to go out in uh, late October, 1st of November, Halloween in Las Vegas, is so much fun. 
Wow, that does sound like fun. I never thought of Halloween in Las Vegas. Oh, you you will see costumes and huh. and people parading up and down the strip. My wife and I uh, were out last year, and finally my wife said, "Bob, we got to stop some of these people and ask them to take their pictures." And so we did. I bet we took twenty pictures of different people uh, with their permission, just so we could bring them back and show people how wild it is out there in Las Vegas for Halloween. You know, I could see going to Las Vegas just for the people watching and the, the phenomenon of all of these different varied people coming together and pulling out all the stops on Halloween. Oh, yeah. My, my wife loves that. She loves to mm-hmm. just watch the people. We spend very little time in the casinos. All right. Bob, thanks a lot. Thank you. And we've got Allison on the line in Las Vegas. And Allison, you actually live in Las Vegas? I do. You heard us talking about this parallel world. What's your take on that? You've got one point. You're you're a big city now. Uh, do you are you creatures of the casinos, or do you sort of ignore that whole world? <laughs> I, I think it depends. I'm I'm actually a, a local school teacher myself, so I don't frequent the casinos much. Uh, perhaps on the weekends, but more only when uh, someone comes out to visit. It's it doesn't seem to be something that we do generally, except to the local casinos. So you got a, you got visitors, and sure, they want to see the Strip, and you probably give them a, give them a good tour. I, I try to. <laughs> As a school teacher, you probably know the ins and outs of Halloween. Uh, what's your uh, memories of Halloween in, in Las Vegas? Well, um, usually uh, I, I don't spend much time on the Strip, so I don't think I've, I've seen the same. Uh, mm-hmm. we don't, the, the locals, I don't think, celebrate it quite the same as the tourists would. Um, unless you go down to the strip, and I don't, I don't know if I'm that wild right. <laughs> for, for those kinds of things. I have heard that they're pretty amazing. I've heard some stories about some of the things that go on. So I, I assume that it would be a fabulous place to, to go down to the strip and see people being wild. So now, give a, what is your tip from an insider's point of view about Las Vegas? Uh, just, I think uh, they said something, one of the other people said something earlier about it, that there are a lot of other places to go other than just on the Strip. And a lot of the locals don't go to those areas, so I think it's great advice to ask someone on the airplane or ask someone in one of the casinos, you know, do you know a good local place? Place meaning entertainment, gambling, eating, all of that? Absolutely, all of that. We actually have a really good um, unknown local theater uh, group. Huh. And it's fairly, fairly inexpensive entertainment, you know, $5 for an hour or two if you wanted to get off the strip, if you don't want to spend the $80 to see one of the bigger ones. You know, that's good advice anywhere in the world in your travels is to remember just the overhead of, of renting on the main drag on the strip anywhere. Your restaurants, your entertainment is going to cost more. If you can just get into the low rent area away from the tourist crowds, you can get a better value. Uh, again, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, the example that I always use is if you stay on the strip on a Saturday night, you could expect at some of the finer hotels to pay $300, whereas you could find a perfectly comfortable room uh, at one of the smaller locals' casinos for between $50 and $100. Think of that extra $200, what you can do with that. You can have a rental car to drive around town and go see a show in a terrific restaurant. So think of all the things that you can save by staying a little bit away from the Strip. Wow, so you can easily save $200 a night just by staying six blocks away from the Strip. Well, I don't know about six blocks, but a couple of miles. A <laughs> couple of miles, service. okay. Good. Hey, Ellison, thanks for your call. Absolutely. More of your lucky calls as we explore Las Vegas with Rick Garman, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Oh, baby, I'm rich tonight. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Today we're hobnobbing with both Lady Luck and Mother Nature as we travel from Vegas to Yosemite on Travel with Rick Steves. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I am just a devil with no despair. So Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. In a few minutes, we'll talk about the natural attractions of California's Yosemite National Park. Right now, we're chatting with Rick Garman about his favorite city, Las Vegas, and taking your calls at 877-333-RICK. And Lori's on the line in St. Charles, Illinois. Hi, Lori. Hi. How is everybody? Doing good. Thanks for your call. Oh, my pleasure. What's your advice for Las Vegas? Well, we go to Las Vegas at least twice a year. We had family down in Las Vegas, and we used to stay with them. And uh, when they moved away, and they periodically go back and forth to Las Vegas, they had suggested that we go to the Gold Coast. Um, I want to let your listeners know that we have stayed at the Flamingo, the Luxor, Aladdin, Monte Carlo, New York, New York, Riviera, the Rio, I think uh, Arizona Charlie's, and as was just alluded to, the Gold Coast offers you some good room rates. It's right next door to the Rio and across from the Palms. So we could hear the parties going on over at the Palms, but uh, that's it. with that money saved, we can rent a car and we travel around and we go out to Henderson, we go out to Summerlin, and I'm anxious to see um, your new casinos that just opened up. And, you know, there are bargains to be found out there. Yes, ask the locals, ask everybody and anyone. And um, a big thing I'd like to share is that I see a lot of people don't do is they go to the buffets, wherever they go to the buffets, and they think, oh, since this is so cheap, we don't need to tip our uh, wait staff. Well, you know, these people work very hard, and I would say, you know, leave a little something on the table for them. All right. And uh, the penny machines are outstanding. I had put 20 cents in one machine and uh, got it to $42.61. It went up to $62, and uh, I left uh, with um, $62.41 profit in my pocket. You actually left a winner. Good for you. I did. I did. The, the Gold Coast has a terrific buffet as well, also very yes. low cost, inexpensive, at, you know, about half of what you'd pay over on the Strip. Maybe yes. not as lavish, but still very good. And right next door at the Rio, they've got a uh, absolutely uh, sumptuous buffet over. If you go down um, the one area, I'm try- I don't know your directions out there. It's the one thing I don't know, but at the Mandalay Bay, mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic buffet out there. If you go all the way into Henderson to the Green Valley, wonderful once again. I'm in fact... I mean, I can't actually say I've had a bad meal out there ever. Hmm. And one night when we were, we just got off the plane at 11.30 at night, we were starving. And uh, I didn't want a whole meal. And I said, well, let's just go over to someplace and get a $1.50 hot dog. And we, we'll split it and I can be happy because it was a foot-long hot dog. Instead, we walked into the Stardust and we couldn't find the $1.50 hot dogs uh, because I think there was next door at Westward Ho and then over at Slots of Fun and um, anyway, we wound up in a Chinese restaurant in Stardust. It was wonderful. The presentation was beautiful. The food was wonderful and plentiful. There are just wonderful things to be had out that way. Gracious people. I mean, your town, Rick, um, I'm going to be looking up uh, information on your Vegas for visitors myself. Um, we're headed out there in another week, and my husband wanted me to share an idea with you. Travelocity has the best prices for hotels in Las Vegas. And he says, book your air travel separate. Uh, absolutely. I actually have found lately that the best bargains for hotels are through the hotel websites themselves. Uh-huh. And because what's happening is that, uh, as Rick mentioned in, in, uh, at the beginning, the uh, hotels are generating about 90% occupancy. So they don't need to give a lot of deals to places like Travelocity and Orbitz and some of the other uh, uh, resellers of rooms. So if you go into the websites for the hotels, uh, directly to those websites, they'll often give room rate guarantees that their rates through their websites are cheaper than anything else that you're going to find anywhere. And often, in my experience, that has been the case. Mm-hmm. Boy, Las Vegas must just absolutely be booming. If you think they've got 135,000 hotel rooms, more than any city in the world, and they're 90% full. That's absolutely right. In the rest of the country, the occupancy rate is somewhere around 
around 65 percent. Well, what do we what do we, what conclusions do we draw from this? Come on, this is not high end uh, cultural travel. This is uh, escapism, and this is glitz, and this is uh, gambling, and this is uh, foot long hot dogs. Uh, what's going on? Las Vegas, I think, is the ultimate example of you build it and they will come. Wow! Uh, yeah. It, the, in the next few years, uh, by 2010, they are adding thousands and thousands of new hotel rooms. I, I can't remember the exact number, but mm. I believe it's over 10,000 new hotel rooms in the next few years. Wow, the Shanghai of American tourism. Absolutely. My goodness. Now, in my memory is you had all these lost leaders. You could you could take the uh, you know giveaway price in the hotels and the, almost the 99-cent buffets and so on, but apparently that's a thing of the past because they're actually making money on the food in the beds now. That's right. The days of, of cheap Las Vegas, at least on the Strip, are pretty much gone um, Why is that, Rick? Well, because as Vegas sort of grew and understood the challenges that it was having from the rest of the country, uh, gambling, now you, you don't usually need to leave your own state to go gambling. Hmm. So the, the brains in Vegas sort of figured, well, we need to do something else to set ourselves apart. And so they started putting in all these fantastic dining experiences, world-class shows, uh, attractions, recreation, shopping, all of the other things that you can do besides gambling. So that's working? And, and absolutely. In, in Vegas right now, they make more money off of those, quote, sideline things mm. than they do off of gambling. Okay, so like you said, it's an adult Disneyland, and it's not just a, a, a chance for everybody to gamble, but it's more than that. It's an amusement park for adults. Many absolutely. There's the, you know, world again, world-class restaurants, wild nightclubs, unlike anything that you'll see anywhere in the country. Uh, it really is all about the nonstop party and, and having fun. What happens in what's the what's the advertising quote? What happens in Las Vegas? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. All right. May I ask a question? Isn't it true that uh, the uh, second largest shopping mall is coming down to Las Vegas? A duplicate of what you have in uh, Minnesota? That has been uh, a rumor. It has not been formally announced yet. Okay. Well, the real estate agents tell you that. And then another thing that we had heard was that a lot of these stores that sell um, furniture from North and South Carolina are going to be out your way, too. There is a brand-new thing that just opened, I believe it was last year, called the World Furniture Mart, which is near downtown Las Vegas. Uh, and they would had their first big show, huge show, that took over most of Las Vegas. And they are actively trying to compete with High Point, North Carolina, to be the furniture capital of the world. As you go down uh, the back alley, no, I don't mean the back alley, but the back roads, and there is just wonderful shopping to be had, so I can see where people make it a shopping mecca, too. Absolutely. Lori, thanks for your call. You're welcome. All right. Sarah in Williamsburg, Virginia. We had an email from Sarah, and she just says she longs for the old Las Vegas, uh, where the place where people went to enjoy a little gambling and expensive dining and free drinks. Now it caters much more to the wealthy, offering expensive gourmet dining and an abundance of upscale and overpriced shopping. I think they may have forgotten that the anybody's outnumber the somebody's. Uh, Rick, what do you think about a comment like that? I think it's true, again, when you're focusing on the strip. Okay. Uh, but if you, uh, again, if you're going to pick up a, a, a guidebook, whether it's mine or anybody else's, or if you're going to go to a website, whether it's mine or anybody else's, you should really make sure that they have sections in the book that talk about areas other than the strip because a lot of guidebooks will focus just on those primary mm. tourist attractions. Good advice. And I would imagine because it's changing so darn fast, you want a guidebook that's up to date. Absolutely. So uh, your book came out December 2005, uh, and uh, that would be something important to know when you're selecting the guidebooks. So quickly, uh, Rick Garman, who's the author of Moon Handbook Las Vegas, uh, let's talk a little bit about the casinos. What are the top casinos for the seasoned gamblers, the real pros? Do they have a place they prefer? Usually the more expensive the hotel, the, the, the higher class of, of gambler you're going to get there. Places like Bellagio, Caesars Palace, the new Wynn Las Vegas. That's where you'll find a lot of the really serious gamblers. And do all the, all the casinos uh, statistically have the same odds for winning and so on? No, absolutely not. How would you know which is which? Well, you can't know specifically, but you can know geographically, according to reports that are put out by the Nevada Gaming Commission, that the Casinos on the Strip, in general, pay out less than the casinos on in the downtown area, which in turn pay out less than the casinos in the neighborhoods, the locals' casinos around town. So if somebody's concerned about this, uh, where would they go for that information? 
the there is a website for the Nevada Gaming Commission that you can go and log on to, and you sort of have to hunt around, but you can find um, their annual reports. Look in the Nevada Gaming Commission. Now, if you're a beginner, a rank beginner, you hardly know how to play blackjack, what's the best sort of wading pool for you to uh, sample all of this? Go to one of the smaller casinos. Actually, any casino is good. Make sure you're looking for a low-limit table so -hmm. that you're not getting yourself in over your head. A lot of the casinos will have gaming instruction. Yeah, I I read in your book that the Imperial Palace, for instance, offers free lessons. A lot of the casinos do. Right. And not only can you get yourself basic instruction on how to play the game, but a lot of times they'll offer you things like coupon books or or freebies to try and get you to stay in the casino and actually gamble there. And, And you're actually sort of immersed in all the casino hubbub and action, and you're just learning with no risk? Absolutely. Well, there's a good way, if you're a cheapskate, to have uh, sort of a quasi-experience. Exactly. Now, um, you mentioned also in your book that the dealers should not be seen as your enemy. They're not getting a cut of your losings, and, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're not against you. They can actually give you advice and so on. Talk more about that. Sure. One of the most important things when selecting a table to sit down at is to try and think of what kind of experience that you want. So what I always do, I always want a fun experience. I, I, I don't like to be surrounded by the stone-faced gamblers. So right. I look for a table where I see the people talking to each other, where the dealer is helping out and, and, and feeling like they are commiserating when people lose and celebrating when people win. So it's all about the experience and making sure that you find the one that's right for you. I suppose a dealer actually prefers it if you're winning because then you're more likely to tip more. That's absolutely. And, and stay longer. And stay longer. All right. Hey, Rick, uh, is there still a mafia connection with Las Vegas? Not as much. Uh, you primarily, there's rumors of it primarily surrounding some of the strip clubs, things like that. But the major hotels, no, there's absolutely no connection to that anymore. It's all corporate-driven stock profits. So there's big corporations building big hotels faster than ever in Las Vegas. Absolutely. I've been talking with Rick Garman. He's the author of the Moon Handbook to Las Vegas. Rick, thanks very much for um, a little practical insight into the um, tourist capital, I think, of the United States, Las Vegas. Thank you. I'm going to keep on the run. I'm going to have me some fun. If it costs me my very last dime. If I wind up broke, oh, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time. I'm going to give it everything I got. Lady Luck, please let the dice stay hot. Let me shoot a seven with every shot. Oh, Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Viva Las Vegas. Okay, so maybe the glitz of Las Vegas isn't your idea of fun. Let's step away from the Strip and venture a little further west into California's Sierra Nevada mountains. For a more natural getaway, head for the pristine wonders of Yosemite National Park. It's time for Nature in the Extreme, and that means Yosemite National Park in California. I've got with me on the line Anne-Marie Brown, who's written a guidebook uh, to Yosemite, the Moon Handbook to Yosemite. Anne-Marie, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much, Rick. Now, Yosemite, i got to say, when you think uh, extreme nature, when you think just beautiful, wilds, and dramatic scenes, Yosemite comes to mind. Give us a little thumbnail on on why you've specialized in Yosemite, and you run a B&B right there at the entrance to the park. You've written a guidebook on it. What what does Yosemite do to you? You know, I'll tell you, to me, Yosemite is really the greatest show on earth. I mean, the American West has so many fabulous national parks, it's hard to compare them. But, you know, all of us have grown up seeing all the famous Ansel Adams photographs of Yosemite Valley, of the giant waterfalls, the huge chunks of granite, the meandering rivers. Um, you know, the scenery is just really beyond compare. And one of the nicest things about that park is that it's accessible to everybody. Um, if you're a serious hiker or backpacker, you can get out in the backcountry and really see the park. But if you're just a sightseer and want to drive your car, you can also see some of Yosemite's greatest highlights very, very easily. So, you know, it, it's just kind of like California's playground. So you can make it a road trip or you can make it a hiking adventure? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you can even make it a, you know elegant dining experience if you want, or you can make it a 
very rustic backcountry experience. It's, it's something for everybody. Now, this probably works in with a trip to San Francisco. How far of a drive is it from San Francisco? You know, from San Francisco to the western entrances to the park, it's almost exactly three and a half hours. So it's very doable, you know, as, as combining it with the two. All right. And uh, in your book, you mentioned there's 800 miles of paths and 260 miles of roads in this park that's the size of Rhode Island. Yeah, that's right. I've been hiking in Yosemite for more than 20 years, and I still haven't covered every foot of every trail. There's just so much to see. Well, now you said that every trail leads to a great destination. How so? If you're a waterfall fan, of course, that's probably what Yosemite is most famous for. So early in the summer and in the spring months, there are dozens of waterfalls you can go see from Upper Yosemite Falls, which is the tallest waterfall in North America, to some of the smaller, lesser-known falls. Uh, I think every hiker is happy with a waterfall as a destination. But then also a lot of the real icons of Yosemite, like Half Dome, El Capitan, um, some of the other big domes, North Dome, Clouds Rest, those are all accessible mostly by day hike. So with one day's effort and time, you can go see some of the places that you maybe heard about your entire life. Now, I would assume you've got, what, three and a half million visitors a year coming to Yosemite. I would think the vast majority of those people hardly get out of their car. And if you do a little hiking, you can really get to the pristine corners and and hardly know that there's so many visitors coming. That's absolutely true. The vast majority of visitors, they say over 90%, only see Yosemite Valley when they go to Yosemite National Park. And Yosemite Valley is only 1% of the entire land area of the park. So you can imagine, you know, 90% of the people crammed into 1% of the park, all you have to do is start walking a little bit or drive on some of the other roads, and suddenly you're a long ways from everybody else. What a horrible thing to drive all the way there and just go up this one little valley, and it's just like a tiny little probe into the park, and it's uh, kind of a dead end, and you're just probably surrounded by tour groups and buses and... Yes and no. You know, I have to say, it's very easy to be down on Yosemite Valley for exactly the reasons you're talking about, and that's because it is crowded, and yeah, it's, it's just kind of a tiny snapshot of the whole park, and yet, there's so much drama in the valley, you can come away from the, a day in the valley really awed by the scenery. I mean, some of the most famous sites in Yosemite are located all in that tiny well, that's, space. Yeah, El Capitan just rockets right up from the valley, doesn't it? Yeah, it is, and, and that's something, I mean, people are always awed by the sight of that. It's considered to be the largest single piece of granite on Earth, um, and of course, wow. people do rock climb it, so it takes you know anywhere between three days and a week to climb oh. up the face of El Cap. Um, and one of the most exciting things to do in the valley is just sit in the meadow below El Cap with your binoculars and watch those little tiny ant-sized rock climbers heading up the face. So there's usually a, a little audience on their folding chairs watching the drama unfold. Almost always, and it, and it really is something to see. We'll continue with guidebook author Anne-Marie Brown exploring the spectacular beauty of one of America's most popular getaways, Yosemite National Park. There's more just ahead as we travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and we're exploring the ins and outs of California's Yosemite National Park with Anne-Marie Brown, who operates the Blackberry Inn near the entrance of the park, and she's the author of The Moon Handbook to Yosemite. Well, now, Yosemite was founded in 1890. Is that one of the older national parks? It is. It's actually number two after Yellowstone, and there's some debate about that because Yosemite was originally formed actually as a California state park, and then it became a national park, and that's how it ended up with number two status. If somebody's fascinated with that kind of history, is there any sort of a visitor center that shows the uh, early um, appreciation of nature in the United States? Yeah, actually, the the park has several visitor centers. Yosemite Valley, of course, has the largest one, since that's where most of the visitors do wind up. 
But in the summer months, there's also a visitor center in Tuolumne Meadows, which is a lovely high country area, Hmm. and then another one down in the Wawona area of the park, which is on the south side. Now, what's the deal? You pay $20 to get in? It's $20 to get in it, but that is good for a week. So you just kind of hang on to your receipt, and every time you go in and out of the park, you show it. It's good for seven days. Every person, every car, every family, how does that work? It's every car. So if you can cram your family of five into one car, then it's just $20. $20 for a car for a week? Yeah. Now, you think about that. That's an incredible bargain. That's huge. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it is. And if you're, of course, older than 65... You're entitled to a National Parks Pass, which is only $5, and it's good for the rest of your life at any park in the country. So that's one of the great perks of being in the 65 and over club. That's great. Ansel Adams, the great photographer, must have been the the best thing that could happen to Yosemite because uh, he sort of created the image that um, many Americans who've never even been near the place uh, have Mm -hmm. etched into their minds. Uh, He was there in the 1930s, basically? guy, actually. He lived in Yosemite Valley for a long time. In fact, he met his wife there, and and they were married. Um, A lot of people don't know about Ansel Adams is not only was he just a tremendous photographer, but he was also a very accomplished piano player. And he actually met his wife in Yosemite Valley because her father owned the only piano in Yosemite Valley at the time. So he went there to practice. Wow. Ended up meeting his daughter, and they were married, et cetera, et cetera, and lived many years in the park. Um, so it, it, he's a fascinating individual, and, of course, his his photographic works really stand as a monument to him. I mean, he's still, yeah. his black-and-white photographs are really beyond compare, not just at Yosemite, but in many other national parks across the country. You know, in so many cases, when I want to appreciate nature, I love to drop into a museum and see how great artists have portrayed it. Is, uh, is yes. there a chance to see, is there a gallery in Yosemite Valley where you can uh, um, refresh your memory with the Ansel Adams uh, photographs before you go hiking? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there is the Ansel Adams Gallery, which is still run by descendants of Ansel Adams, wow. right in Yosemite Valley. And they showcase not only his works, but also works of other more contemporary photographers and also some painters as well um, at that gallery. And it, it's an amazing place, and their exhibits change all the time. And uh, I always stop in there when I'm down in the valley because there's always something new and interesting. All right. I want to go to one of our callers. I've got Rich on the line in Santa Cruz, and I think Rich is a... Uh, Rich, are you a photographer, aren't you? Well, yeah, I, I like to think of myself as one, but I've been—I'm very inspired by the place and um, some of the uh, contemporary photographers that the lady just mentioned through the Anselm Gallery. I've taken several uh, seminars there. Uh, there's nothing more inspiring to me when we're using the uh, 2,000 foot of El Capitan as a light box because the, the 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 place is one of the, the the characteristics that I like about it photographically is that because of the varying light in the deepness of the valley, the angle and the warmth of the light changes all throughout the year. So you can really go there just about any time of the year and get great shots in the, in the morning, in the afternoon, if the sun's low enough, the light bounces around off the meadows, that, and, and based on, wow. the, on, the, uh, on the, the time of the year, the, the colors are just amazing. So I just took some one in uh, a couple seminars in the fall, the colors were great. I'm going back in the next 10 days to get this an angle on a specific uh, Waterfall, it's just an awe-inspiring place. It's almost a religious experience for me. Well, you know, this chasing the light is essential for photographers. All the photographers that I work with in my TV production, they just, they're fanatic about the light. And apparently uh, Ansel Adams recognized that unique uh, value of the light in his uh, art in Yosemite, and and, uh, contemporary photographers do as well, huh, Rich? Yeah, and I think that's the most awe-inspiring thing about Ansel Adams is because he was there when the light was there, and he didn't, this was, you know, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and we all have the all the added uh, benefits of modern technology with respect to knowing when the, the lights can be just right. And he had some places were only accessible by mule, and he had to carry 100 pounds of camera wow. around and all that stuff. So when you actually think back about and he was so far ahead of his time that it, it's, uh, it's amazing. But he's also inspired a, a great crop of modern-day uh, photographers that what Ansel did was so fantastic. He just... There's no sense in trying to recreate it. So basically, uh, your tip uh, then, Rich, would be for people not to just be too hung up on Ansel Adams, but go to the Ansel Adams Gallery and appreciate contemporary photographers as well. Appreciate him and their ph- photographs scattered throughout the, the various venues. There's uh, some outstanding uh, photographs in the various restaurants that the, the contemporary Ansel Adams Gallery people uh, have taken, and there are so many excellent opportunities. You don't have to try to shoot half done. It's uh, done. That's great. Rich from Santa Cruz, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. 
You know, another thing worth mentioning, I think, is that even if you aren't into photography or barely know how to use your camera, in the summer months, the park has free photography walks uh, two or three times a week, always on Saturday mornings and usually a couple other days, where you can go out with a professional photographer, walk around the valley for an hour, and learn how to see with the eyes of a professional photographer and cost absolutely nothing. I and mean, there are wow. other ones that you can do that are more extensive and do cost money. But the free photography walks are just a great way to start to understand how to look through the lens of a camera at nature. What a treat to do that in the footsteps of Ansel Adams with your own professional coach. Yes, absolutely. Beautiful. I'm talking with Anne-Marie Brown, and she writes the Moon Handbook to Yosemite National Park. And uh, the second edition is just out in 2006. And Anne-Marie, when we're thinking about uh, Yosemite, of course, there's the uh, obvious hiking, but there's also a lot of other um, activities, horseback riding, fishing, mountain biking. Uh, run us through those really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Hiking, I think, is the main reason that people come if they want to do outdoor activities. But in the early summer months, you can go rafting on the Merced River. It's not whitewater rafting. It's more like floating. It's uh, family-oriented rafting. Um, there are paved bicycle paths in the valley, 12 miles worth of paths, which is a wonderful way to see Yosemite Valley without driving your car. Um, they do rent bicycles in the valley, so you don't have to bring your own. You can just rent them right there and, and ride through these 12 miles of mostly level paths. Uh, there's no mountain biking in the park itself because the trails are reserved for hikers and equestrians. Um, but there's plenty of other ways to see the park besides on foot. Yes, you can certainly run, go on a guided horseback trip. There are tram rides in the summer, open-air tram rides that lead around the valley and also around the giant sequoia grove in the southern part of the park. Are these uh, paved walk paths, are they uh, wheelchair-friendly? Yes, they are. So Absolutely. You, you could actually uh, roll through the park for miles. You could. And, in fact, you can see some of Yosemite's greatest sites. You can ride in a wheelchair to the base of Lower Yosemite Falls or to the base of Bridalville Falls as well. Um, which is really unique, I think, for a park, is, is that so much is wheelchair accessible. That is great. And what are the uh, seasonal considerations? When do you want to go? You know, that's so much up to your own personal likes and dislikes. Obviously, the busiest season in Yosemite is the summer. It's when everybody goes on vacation. And of course, the weather is guaranteed to be nice here in the California mountains. It almost never rains except for a rare thunderstorm in the summertime. So, if you want sort of summer-based activities, it's all about June, July through September. I personally really like the autumn because uh, the crowds dissipate. There's much less people after about September 30th, and uh, there's still plenty of great hiking to do. The first real good snows usually don't come till Thanksgiving or later. Uh, winter is also a lovely time to go. There's downhill skiing. There's cross-country skiing. There's snowshoeing sledding, all kinds of wonderful winter activities. There's even an ice skating rink um, in the eastern part of the valley, which has a wonderful view of Half Dome, so you can do pirouettes and figure oh, eights wow. and look up at Half Dome, and that, that's a, just a terrific experience, and that goes from November to March. Uh, spring is when the waterfalls are the best. So I was going to ask you, aren't, this, aren't the waterfalls really in their glory during the spring and, and much less impressive for the rest of the year? Absolutely. Um, you know, most years, the biggest waterfalls, like uh, Yosemite Falls, will be dried up by July 4th or very soon thereafter. So if you want to see waterfalls, then you really want to come, say, April to July or April to June even would, okay. be, would be the optimal. Good advice. What if somebody's interested in the indigenous culture, the, uh, the Indians that were there long before the modern-day modern tourists? You know, there's some fascinating history on, on the American Indians who lived there. They were the Miwok tribe. And there is a little Indian village that's been set up behind the main visitor center in Yosemite Valley where they try to recreate what the dwellings were like for the people that lived in Yosemite Valley long ago, um, and what their daily life was like, how they fished in the river and how they would plant acorns and grow more oaks and burn the grasses every year so that the next year would be more plentiful. Um, and there's some fascinating displays on that, and they do do some cultural history interpretations. Um, so if, if the visitor wants to just... Um take advantage of every sort of entertainment and educational and nature-loving option when they go in. They pay their 20 bucks for the whole family in the car, and there's quite a bit of uh, free uh, information and, and help available once you get inside. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's almost nonstop. I mean, you could do a nature walk, a campfire program, 
a visit to the various museums. You could easily fill a day just doing all that free activity stuff and without even setting foot on a hiking trail. Huh, and a lot of family-friendly things, I would imagine. Many, many family-friendly yeah. things. It, the park is really set up very, very well for families. We've got Steve on the line in El Dorado Hills, California. Yeah, have you been to Yosemite lately? Well, you know, I was just listening to your program, and it's bringing back a flood of great memories. Oh, good. And uh, I think I've been going there for over 50 years now. Tell me your best memory. Well, the very best memory was um, my and my wife's wedding. Wow. Uh, we went to the Yosemite Community Church, which I believe is the only church structure in the Valley of Yosemite. And it's interdenominational. And it's just a wonderful, gorgeous setting. It's like a church within a church, because Yosemite reminds us so much of how inspirational life can be. Uh, so that's the best memory that we have. Oh, well, that's a treat. That's a beautiful thing. You can look at an Ansel Adams photography from a spiritual point of view almost, can't you? Yes, you can. And uh, it influenced me heavily, that is to say the valley in particular, when I was quite young. And uh, it stuck with me all of my life. For many, many years, uh, my uh, family and myself uh, went to Yosemite, sometimes more than once a year. And I recall each and every season, um, each one has its positive attributes. Uh One of the wonderful memories for me occurred at midnight uh, when we went to Yosemite Falls, and there was a full moon and we experience something we've never seen anyplace else, which uh, is called a moon bow, kind of the opposite of a rainbow that you would see during the day, which is, of course, caused by the sun. But the moon sheds its own light, and at midnight in a full moon, you can see a moon bow near the falls. So that's because of the mist? That's because of the mist. Wow, the moon moon is hitting the mist. Yes. I think that's probably the most romantic sight in all of Yosemite, is the moon, though. And it, you can only see it about two months of the year. It's got to be when Yosemite Falls is really flowing hard and when there's a full moon. Wow. That reminds me of a powerful image I had uh, river rafting in the Rockies of in, in Idaho was looking at, I think it was right in the middle of the night, at I could see constellations on the river mm. reflected. And, and this sort of connection with nature, you j- if you live in a big city, it's so refreshing. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really eye-opening. All right. You know, there was one other good memory, if I might share it. Right after our wedding, we were spending an evening in Yosemite, and uh, it was between Christmas and New Year's, so there was a lot of snow, there was a lot of ice, and very late at night, early in the morning, actually, we heard these very eerie sounds, and we looked at each other and kind of wondered is it possible that there are whales in Yosemite Valley? (laughs) Because we heard these sounds that reminded us of the sound that a whale would make in the deep ocean. And upon getting up the next morning and inquiring, what could this be? What could this possibly be? It turned out to be the sound caused by large chunks of frozen waterfalls crashing to the valley floor and echoing through the valley. Wow. Steve, thank you very much for uh, giving us some evocative images of Yosemite. Wonderful memories. Wow. That's one reason to travel there in the winter. Absolutely. Every season has its own charm. I'm talking with Anne-Marie Brown, who's written the Moon Handbook to Yosemite National Park. Just really quickly, Anne-Marie, are there backpacking options that people can go and, and just sleep anywhere they want? Uh, Yes and no. They can't just sleep anywhere they want, but there are tons of backpacking options. Uh, Because it is a national park, all the backpacking is very carefully regulated uh, because they don't want the backcountry being overrun. So So you have to book a place and be there overnight? Essentially, yeah. What you need to do is you get on the Yosemite National Park website, which Uh is nps.gov slash yose, and click on backpacking, you'll get on there, and it gives you a whole choice of places where you can get a permit for Mm. backpacking. So you can say, oh, well, July 17th to the 20th, I know I want to go backpacking, and it'll say, okay, well, here's all the places you can go. Take your pick. There's suggested loops of various lengths, 
Uh, you could do a weekend trip or a week-long trip or a two-week trip, whatever you want. Wow, that sounds... But you do have to get a permit to do it. And you it. can do that on the web. What about Grand Lodges? Are there any sort of uh, WPA, FDR kind of work projects from back before World War II that are, are there for us to enjoy? Well, yeah, there is actually one of the most spectacular, I think, in all the national parks is the Iwani Hotel, which was built in 1927 in Yosemite. It's a National Historic Landmark, and it is just truly an elegant structure with huge giant timbers and a lot of stone on the outside. Wow, uh, the that's... insides of wrought iron chandeliers and stained glass and lots of Native American basketry and uh, killum rugs on the walls. It's, it's really something to see. Even if you don't stay there or have a meal in its gorgeous restaurant, you should at least walk through what they call the public rooms. Which so are that's, open for anybody. that's the Awani Hotel. Awani, yeah. Is it terribly expensive or affordable? It's terribly expensive. The cheapest room right now, 2006, is something like $370 a night. Wow. Now, you have a B&B right at the northwest entrance called the Blackberry B&B. What would a double cost there? <laughs> the Blackberry Inn is a lot more affordable. Our rooms are about $150 a night. For two people with for breakfast. Two, yeah, yeah with right. breakfast, and we do a wonderful breakfast here. Oh, that's great. And uh, RVs, can people take their RVs into the park and sleep in them? Yeah, they sure can. There's certain campgrounds that are designated for RVs and other campgrounds where they're not allowed, usually because the access roads are too windy or too narrow okay. for RVs. But all the, almost all the campgrounds in the valley are open to RVs and a couple others in the high country as well. So it is pretty RV-friendly, I would say. Fascinating. I think you've got a great way of sharing information, and I think that comes across in your book. I've been talking with Anne-Marie Brown, the author of The Moon Handbook to Yosemite National Park. Anne-Marie, uh, you've got a website, annemariebrown.com. Best wishes in your work, and I uh, hope to see you sometime in, at your B&B at the Gateway to Yosemite. Oh, thanks so much, Rick. I sure enjoy your show. I'm a big fan. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Ten thousand tons of ice are crushing you into a beautiful one of a Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include Sonia Grosset, Rachel Unk, and Robin Stencil, with technical support from John Weist and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.